0: Ask N.T. Anything podcast. Well, hello and welcome to another edition of the show, an Easter edition today with me, Justin Briley, Theology and Apologetics editor for Premier and brought you in partnership as ever with SBCK and right online. And I was hoping to get this show out actually a little bit earlier uh, in Lent, um, but what with everything going on in the world, uh, it had to wait a little longer than i had hoped. But here it is just in time, just before Easter Sunday actually arrives, uh, a special show in which I sit down with Tom to talk about your questions on atonement and crucifixion. And as you'll hear, this was all recorded well before the Corinthians coronavirus uh, crisis really came into force so um, you're going to be hearing uh, well how things were when they were normal frankly Um, but uh, I'm sure you'll enjoy hearing his answers to some of your questions and uh, on the next edition of the podcast aiming to get some of your questions in on the resurrection too. Uh, Just a reminder that we're still running this competition where by the end of April we will be picking winners out of the Ask NT Write Anything mailing list for signed copies of Paul A Biography. So you could be in the running if you simply get registered over at our website. That's askntright.com. Make sure you're signed up for the uh, subscriber list and then you will be drawn from the hat or you'll be among those that we're drawing from, from the hat uh, to win those signed copies of uh, Paul A Biography and of course by signing up you'll get those regular updates from our newsletter and uh, bonus content and uh, more besides so uh, all of the details again over at askntright.com for now a very happy easter and enjoy today's show back for another edition of the show with myself Justin and Tom sitting down to take your questions today on the crucifixion and atonement and that's obviously very relevant to the period we're in of Lent uh, as we approach Easter. Um, Lent in some ways has been rather revived as a Christian tradition I've noticed in recent years I think whereas once it was seen as the domain simply of Anglo-Catholics and that sort of thing. Um, people outside of those traditions increasingly observing it in some way, doing something to market mm-hmm. the 40-day the period up to Easter. Um, I suppose you've always, <laughs> yourself acknowledged and done something to reflect the Lent period? Sure, I Tom. mean a lot depends on, on what's going on in one's life and
1: sometimes I've had to be travelling for 10 mm-hmm. days in the middle mm-hmm. of it and going to different places and being taken out to meals and and it's very hard to keep a strict discipline in the way that you might mm-hmm. if you were at home all the time mm-hmm. but yes I grew up in a very ordinary middle of the road Anglican church where it's just assumed Ash Wednesday introduces you to Lent and now we have these 40 days coming up to Holy Week and Easter and uh, Holy Week and particularly Good Friday and Easter Easter. Um, What's always saddened me about that is that we often do Lent quite well in the sense of being intentional about either taking something up or or doing without something or saving the money we would have spent on Mm. alcohol or chocolate or Mm. whatever it is giving it to some good cause but then we don't do Easter in the same way and Mm. and I have a problem about that. Easter too is a great 40-day time but that ought to be a celebration Mm. and so I think it's characteristic of western christianity to be very conscious of the penitential season yes, and yes, oh dear, yes. and then we have a big party on easter day and then we forget about yes, it all yes, yes. and actually the rhythm of lent ought to lead to the new the new creation rhythm of easter and that's yeah. a whole other story so so yes i mean uh, everywhere that i have lived and every job that i've done uh, demands a different kind of discipline for Lent. And uh, this year, because we've only just moved house and tried to settle in mm-hmm. and figure out what's going on and haven't even settled into a regular family pattern of church going yet, we're, we're, we're still trying to figure all that out. Yes. But yeah, I grew up with people going to Lent and Bible studies or deciding to read a book
0: for Lent, mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, the trouble with that is I'm, I'm always reading books. <laughs> I'm not quite sure. <laughs> Wouldn't make that much difference. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, and do you find yourself usually with an ashen cross on your forehead uh, oh, oh often Ash yes, yeah,
1: yes. N- not always but often um and i mean when i was teaching in st andrews there, there if, if i had to be in class for a, a seminar early on i could get some funny looks with, um, or, or did not, most people probably understand? not because no because there would be other other people around right. likewise yes. um i suspect that if i walk around oxford um this this Lent um yeah. that way it'll be the same <laughs>
0: uh, i read a fascinating story actually a bit off subject but um of a of a young man um who had as an atheist, as a sceptic at least, had started attending, you know, quite a high Anglican church and went along to their Ash Wednesday and said it had quite a a profound impact on him, this, this act of receiving the cross. And, went into his workplace, you know, during the rest of the day and discovered, actually, it helped to identify who the other Christians were, because... And he got give, it led to him being given a someone connecting him with him, giving him a copy of C.S. Lewis's books, and <laughs> he became a Christian in the well, end. Well, um, well. So there you go. It's God moves in many serious ways. <laughs> great. <laughs> um, we're talking about the crucifixion today. Yeah. People always have questions on this. Obviously, you've written books on the subject as well, Tom. Um, but let's start with... Um, something that's come up in a couple of ways fred in newmarket ontario says can you explain the necessity of jesus's crucifixion specifically as a blood sacrifice in inverted commas why the necessity of sacrifice at all from Abelon, and how specifically was jesus's crucifixion the end the telos the abolishment of blood sacrifice beyond a simplistic he was the perfect man so his sacrifice was enough how is it required at all? And conversely, how is it enough for the almost infinitude of humanity's sins, both transgression and missing the mark? Simple questions, <laughs> says Fred <laughs> at the end yeah. there. Yes, thanks, Fred. Really simple <laughs> questions.
1: Um, there's a major problem here in that uh, we are so distanced from the idea of animal sacrifice mm. that it's that, not something that we do or have done. In the ancient world, most people lived quite close to the land. Many people were either themselves or immediate family involved in agriculture and with animal husbandry. And you just would be used to killing animals um, for all sorts of reasons, either for, for food or because they were sick or offering them in some sort of sacrifice. So that in the ancient world, th- this was perfectly normal for us. It's like, yuck, I mm. you know, never killed an animal sure. knowingly in that way. Um, Uh, and the other thing is that the idea of sacrifice we have assumed has the meaning that it has in some forms of pagan religion which is trying to please a deity Mm. by doing something cruel or um, certainly deadly (laughs) to to an animal uh, or particularly um, having an animal being punished because of my sin Mm. or something and when people hear the phrase blood sacrifice I think all of that stuff is going on in the back of their minds I want to say just let's rinse that out and start again where the Bible starts because in the book of Leviticus and Numbers where you get the the ancient Israelite sacrificial laws, it's not about this animal being punished for the sins of the people. If that was so, you couldn't offer the animal to God mm. because… Uh, it would be impure. Yeah. It would be unclean. Mm. The only animal that very definitely has sins placed on it is the one animal that you don't sacrifice. Name of the scapegoat, the scapegoat. Mm. exactly. It's driven Sent off out to, into to the to, desert yeah. for, for azazel, whatever that means. Right. Different theories as to what that might mean. Um, but it, it's a way of saying yes, we need to get rid of our sins. It's a great visual aid for that. Once a year, that's what you mm. do on the Day of Atonement. Um, so, what is sacrifice about? And this is where. Um, the letter to the Hebrews often gets invoked, Mm -hmm. and and it's all about earth and heaven, and about the temple, or the tabernacle in the wilderness, as the place where earth and heaven are joined, and uh, this relates to one of the biggest problems that we have about the whole conception of Christianity in the Western world, which is that the Bible isn't about how do we, sinners that we are, get to live with God, it's about how does God, in his love and grace, get to live with us, Mm. sinners that we are. And the temple is the sign that God wants to live with and amongst his people. But if that is to be so, then because God is utter life and utter goodness, he cannot dwell with anything that reeks of death in the sense of sin, corruption, Mm. decay, etc. God is the life giver. He says yes to creation, not no to creation. And so God provides, according to Exodus of numbers, God provides the life blood of the animal as the way of cleansing the sanctuary from all the pollution that right. would otherwise prevent him from coming to live there. Mm. Now, when you fast forward from that and see the language that Jesus uses, which is complicated, and the language then that the early Christians use— It's something to do with what Paul says in Romans 5, verse 1. Since we're justified by faith, faith, we have access to this grace in which we stand. This is temple language. Mm, mm. And that God comes to dwell with us because Jesus has been, in that sense, the perfect sacrifice, because his blood has cleansed the heavenly temple, Mm. which now gets joined to the earthly world, Mm. Um, so that now, even though we have been sinners, God can dwell with us. And that is what then kickstarts Paul's whole theology of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit dwells in and with us now. Now, this is huge. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've just yeah. listed about 10 yeah, different yeah, yeah. layers of theological Each investigation. Each could be a separate exactly. program. And yeah. I, I just want to say, hold off mm. from the modern anxiety about blood sacrifice and let's try and get our heads around, which is difficult. The whole biblical idea Mm. of the reason just note, in Leviticus and Numbers, the animals are not killed on the altar. That happens in some pagan sacrifices. Mm. The animals are killed somewhere else. The moment of killing isn't isn't important. What matters is that the blood, which is the life, Mm. a gift from God of life— then cleanses and rinses right. the sanctuary. Now, let me be quite clear this does not mean that I am denying something you could loosely call substitutionary atonement. That phrase means mm, many different mm, things to many different people. Mm. Many people have quite wrongly identified the sacrificial cult with substitutionary atonement. Once you separate those out, you can understand them both in their own way. One other point, mm. which, and this is enough agendas for about three PhDs here. <laughs> um, the Passover sacrifice and the regular uh, round of daily sacrifices, particularly then the Day of Atonement, are very, very different things. Mm. There's nothing in the Passover sacrifice about uh, forgiveness of sins. Mm. They come together in Isaiah 53, interestingly, and Jesus himself seems to draw them together because the state that Israel had got itself into, which Jesus is responding to and, and sharing, is that Israel is in long-term exile because of her Mm. sins so that the exiles both need forgiveness of sins and a new exodus and so the the sacrifice of um, the Passover and the sacrifice of the day of atonement which are quite separate things get joined together by Jesus and explored together by the early church Mm. And then forgotten about by later Christians because we're coming
0: with the wrong conceptualities. So it's a tough a it, tough set of issues. Now, you've, you've implicitly mentioned the, the book where you lay a lot of this out mm-hmm. in one of your recent books, um, The Day the Revolution Began. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll skip sure. to, to Victor's question here. And we will okay. come back to penal yes, substitution yes, as well. We've so sure, got some sure. questions on that. Um, but Victor is in Switzerland and says, I very much appreciate several of Tom's books. Thrilled to hear him in person in <laughs> Basel some years ago. <laughs> I've been struggling through the day the revolution began for over a year with gaps. (laughs) I think I've grasped the main points. Jesus came to fulfill God's covenant promise to raise up a forgiven and liberated host of people from all nations and will one day establish a perfect combined new heavens and new earth for all of us. But why? Oh, why do the arguments, especially Romans 3, have to be so complicated? And (laughs) and I think even just hearing your previous explanation there, a lot of people will have said, well, it was always very simple, you know, when the gospel presentation was yeah, made. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, you're a bad person, Jesus took your sins, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. now you're forgiven, and now you can have life with God. Um, and, and, and a lot of what you're expounding suddenly makes it sound more complicated, you yes, yes. say. Yes,
1: yes, uh, I, I fully appreciate that. And I've spent my life. Um, oscillating between simplicity <laughs> and complexity. And I've written three books with the word simple in the title. And one, <laughs> one of the times my um, publishing editor said to me, Tom, I need to explain to you the meaning <laughs> of the, the word, word simple. <laughs> to which my response was, and I've made this several times, if I'm in St. Andrews, as I was for 10 years, And somebody says, how do I get from here to Glasgow now? Please keep it simple. I could say, (laughs) just keep going west and a bit south and you can't miss it. But it would be kinder to point out that there is a very wide river in the way, two miles wide at its (laughs) narrow point, and that if you try and avoid that, there's a couple of ranges of mountains. Now, am I making it more complicated? Yes, I am. But maybe that would help.
0: Um, Uh, I mean, (laughs) the one thing I would say in all of this is I love exploring the depth and Mm, the complexity. but. We don't need to necessarily understand all that for it to be efficacious in our life.
1: Absolutely. Uh, A long time ago, I heard a very wise teacher, John Wenham, who was uh, in Oxford when I was an undergraduate, gave a talk on the atonement. And he rattled through all these different Mm. theories Mm. and laid it all out brilliantly. And somebody said at the end, How much of this does somebody have to know in order to be a Christian? And he smiled and said, Very little. (laughs) Something about the love of God reaching out in Jesus and his death and embracing you so that's enough to get started Mm. it may not be enough to keep you going but it's certainly enough to get started and that's absolutely right you know Jesus loves me this I know for the Bible tells me so That, that that's pretty basic but then when things get tough you need to understand more and more and more. And it's mm. like many things in life. Um, it, it's like music. You know, somebody joins a choir and can't I just sing the tune? And, well, actually you have to understand about sharps and flats. Mm. and You have to understand about pausing and breathing and so on. Oh, that makes it so complicated. I just like singing in the bath. Mm. Well, okay, you go and sing in the bath, mm. but please don't join the choir unless you're prepared <laughs> to learn the details. Sure. And the same with, with anything that's worth doing. Mm. Um, but Romans three twenty one to 26... Yeah. And there are several other passages in Paul like this. It's as though Paul could have taken that and written a whole letter explaining it, and I suspect that one of the reasons that people fell out of windows sometimes when he was preaching all night <laughs> was that he
0: was explaining it in great detail. Just, just explain uh, for those who don't have photographic <laughs> memory like you do what what is the content of Romans three <laughs> oh, oh, okay. twenty eight twenty six. Okay,
1: well Romans Romans is in is in four great movements, mm. and the first movement is chapters one to four, and Paul sets up the problem, and it's a multi layered mm. problem mm. about how can God's purposes be maintained in the world and how can God's um, covenant faithfulness to Israel to the covenant and to the creation be uh, be fulfilled it looks as though it's all gone horribly wrong and then in 321 he says but now the covenant faithfulness of God has been revealed from God's faithfulness to human faithfulness basically through the death of Jesus but then what he does is he scrunches together his argument. Um, In a very tight little passage, verses 24, 25, and 26, where he says, okay, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Messiah Jesus, redemption is an Exodus word, whom God put forward as a, and the Greek is hilasterion the hilasterion is the mercy seat in the tabernacle with the cherubim either side which is the place where god comes to meet with his people and meet with them in grace where the blood is sprinkled and it's to be received by faith so that he might display his righteousness his covenant faithfulness to prove that in the present time he is faithful to the covenant and that he justifies the one who has faith um, the faith in messiah jesus now Phew, that's a lot. But the, but he's hurrying on because mm. the point he really wants to make at the end of chapter 3 and then in chapter 4 is this is how God has been faithful to the covenant with Abraham to create a worldwide sin-forgiven family. And now we can move on to chapters 5 to 8, mm. 9 to eleven, twelve to 16. But it's as though at several points he's got – I mean, think of it like a telescope. He mm. could have expanded it. He could have written much more, yes, taken each yes. of those points and spelled mm. it out. But for the sake of the logic of this argument, he's telescoped it together, Mm. and we have with labor and difficulty to to spell it. I was talking about a similar passage the other day in in Oxford, in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, where he says, the love of Christ constrains us because one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Whoa, (laughs) wait a minute, Paul, hang on. Can you just take us (laughs) through that slowly? And, and and again and again he does this. Mm. So I think it has to be complicated because maybe it's something to do with the strange inspiration of Scripture that God knows and Paul knew that we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Mm. And I think sometimes the dense and complicated passages are given within an overall structure which is wooing us in to say, hey, stop on this yes. one, dig around. Yes. Try and figure it out.
0: And then that's when you start mm. to see it. Whoa, mm. it's, it's amazing. I, I, I don't think you would have been a eutychus uh, le- <laughs> leaning out the window and falling asleep if you'd been there with Paul uh, un- unpacking some of this stuff. <laughs> but, uh, well, who but, knows? Uh, <laughs> who knows? Um, it was a hot night. <laughs> it was. Um, two, two related questions yep. here, as I promised, on penal substitution. Yes. Now, this comes around every time. And obviously, well, as you'll hear, some people have some sort of worries about you, Tom, mm-hmm, on this sure. front. Um, sure. So Stephen in Austin, Texas, said, I recently had a conversation <laughs> with my pastor about listening to the Ask N.T. Wright Anything podcast and was very surprised by the response. I was told that I have to look out for N.T. Wright because of his beliefs. Most notable was that Mr. Wright does not believe in the idea of penal substitutionary atonement. I found articles that dispute this accusation, but they were published more than a <laughs> decade ago. Could you please explain your views on the subject as they are today? Thank you. And thank you for Paul, a biography. I found it fascinating, inspiring, and went through an entire tin of book darts. And there's another one here, and I'll just read this as well because it's it's much the same stuff. Um, Parker in Malibu, California, says, Why has the church grown to favor substitutional atonement over Christus victor when dealing with the purpose of the cross it seems to me that both atonement theories are shown in scripture and work in tandem to display the power and purpose of Jesus' life, death and resurrection so we've we've covered some of this yeah, ground before yeah, but let, yeah. let's let's just um, unpack it again. Yeah. Penal substitutionary atonement um, uh, should we watch out for you Tom? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well uh, you need to watch out for Paul because it's,
1: <laughs> what I'm really trying to do here is to get inside the mind of Paul mm. and to see precisely Precisely what he means and it's one of the worries that I've had for much of my adult life actually is the way in which the church has assumed that it knows what Paul must have meant mm. and then rather forces certain texts to mean that rather than actually Allowing Paul to state his own terms and develop it, and I mentioned two Corinthians five a moment ago, and there's the famous text in verse twenty one, when it says, "God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in, in him we might become the righteousness of God." People say, "Well, there you are. That's that's quite straightforward. He takes our sin, we take his righteousness. End of conversation." Unfortunately, that's not what that passage is about. The passage is part of that long passage from two Corinthians two fourteen through to six thirteen, which is Paul's apostolic apologia he's explaining to the corinthians why a genuine apostle is bound to look beaten up and suffering and and always in trouble which was not what their idea of a a leader was about Mm -hmm. at all and it's because he is bearing about in his own body as he says in chapter 4 the dying of jesus so that the life of jesus may also be manifest so that passage in 521 comes where he said Um, God reconciled the world to himself through the Messiah and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God was in the Messiah reconciling the world to himself and entrusting us with the word of reconciliation. God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become, might embody the covenant faithfulness of God. In other words, this is about us apostles are looking like the crucified Jesus and that that's what it means so don't be surprised when you go on immediately, very mm. interestingly, chapter 6, verse 2, he's quoting from Isaiah 49, one of the servant songs, and which goes on the very next line to the one he quotes to say, I have given you as a covenant to the people. And then he goes on into this riff about as unknown and yet well known as dying mm. and behold, we live. It's an amazing passage. Mm. And, and the trouble is because people from the 16th century onwards particularly have taken 521 out of its context – it makes it look as though oh there we are this is quite simple sin righteousness done deal sorry righteousness didn't mean what it in the first century what it meant then so pan back from that mm-hmm. to the big question because a, a generation or two ago there was a guy called Gustav Aulén who was a, a Scandinavian bishop who was obviously a bit fed up with the way that a rather cheap and cheerful doctrine of substitutionary atonement was being preached by clergy that he knew, etc., which was all rather brutal. It was just, we're sinners, God needed to punish somebody, here is Jesus, happened to be his own son, that'll do, bang, he gets killed, we're all right. And people are looking at that and saying, uh, hang on, just how does Mm. that work? Is that Mm. fair? Is that moral? Mm. Is that Mm. right? And so Aulane argued, strikingly, that actually that's not the center at all, and that's not really the main point. The point is that in the cross, God won the victory over Mm. the powers of darkness. And so he polarized substitution and Christus victor, Christ, the vanquisher of the forces of darkness. And ever since then, people on both sides of the equation have assumed that those two are antithetical. And as one of your questions here, Parker from Malibu, says, they're not, they work together. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly right. Let me show you how in john chapter 12 jesus it's john's equivalent of of the gethsemane moment Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, the greeks come to the feast and want to see jesus and jesus doesn't go and see them he says um, this is a sign that the moment has come and he says uh, should i be uh, afraid of this hour no for this cause i've come to this hour and he says now is the judgment of this world now is the ruler of this world cast out and if i am lifted up from the earth i will draw all people to myself in other words what i'm about to do is to win a victory over the dark force that has usurped god's rule over the world this is why i called my book jesus and the victory of god mm. 25 years mm. ago um and but how is that done and john makes it quite clear through the narrative, rather than through theological theory, that it happens through Jesus taking the place of the sinner, whether it's Barabbas or whether it's Peter or whoever it is, and and Luke does this particularly again and again. This man has done nothing wrong. We're receiving the just punishment for for our uh, our misdeeds, etc. There's substitution is woven into Luke's narrative. Even though the reader knows, because Jesus says in Luke's Gethsemane scene, this is your hour and the power of darkness. Mm. In other words, it's a battle with the forces of darkness, but the way the victory is won is by Jesus taking the place of the sinner. So the two work together, victory through substitution. How does that work? Mm. This is fascinating. Um, I think it works like this. This is is difficult to Mm. describe, but I think it's central that when we worship idols which we all do to a lesser or greater extent but repentance is always Mm -hmm. a turning away from idols we give to those idols whether it's money or sex or power or particular things or people or whatever we give them power over us and that power causes us to sin Mm -hmm. in various ways deep down inside in our imaginations and in acts and speech etc And every time we sin, we are increasing the grip of those powers on our lives. So the way to break the power of the dark powers that we have invoked by worshipping idols is for sin to be punished and to be dealt with as it needs to be dealt with, sin itself, Mm. so that then the thing which is enabling the idols to keep their grip on us has been dealt with and Mm. and, and is done away with. Mm. The place where Paul says this most clearly, and I want to say this to Stephen mm-hmm. in Austin, mm-hmm. Texas, and to his dear pastor, is Romans 8, verses 3 and 4, where Paul says in verse 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Messiah Jesus. And the ultimate because, there are several becausees there, but the ultimate one is because on the cross, God condemned sin In In the the flesh flesh. of Christ. Now, that Mm. is definitely substitutionary. Mm. It is definitely penal. But it works within that larger scheme Mm. of God dealing with all the powers, which is why at the end of chapter 8, neither death nor life nor anything in all creation shall separate Mm. us from the love of God in Messiah Jesus our Lord. In other words, the victory has been won, but it's a victory through substitution. If you take substitution out of that larger picture— Then you put it into a different, basically medieval picture of we've all been naughty. God has to kick
0: somebody in the teeth. It happens to be his own son. But obviously, the, the passage that's often brought into play from the Old Testament is the Isaiah passage, absolutely. A, a, and in which you know absolutely. But the because Isaiah because of our transgressions, he was wounded, and absolutely.
1: So on. But look at the larger context. Mm. The larger context. If just track back. The fourth servant song is Isaiah fifty two thirteen to fifty three twelve. Track back from fifty two thirteen, just as a few verses back to fifty two seven, mm. which is how lovely on the mountains is the one who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. What does that mean? Babylon has been running the show. Something has happened, which means that God has won the victory over Babylon your watchmen lift up their voices and shout for joy because in plain sight they see Yahweh returning to Zion shout for joy etc mm-hmm. and now look behold my servant in other words victory over the dark power through the work of the servant the servant song you know when i was doing theology in oxford mm. all those years ago the first question i answered in the first exam paper was an absolute gift for me said quote the servant songs can only be understood in the light of Isaiah 40 to 55 as a whole discuss Mm. and I thought yes that's exactly right these servant songs mean what they mean not within the context of a detached medieval atonement theory but in the context of the whole vision of the greatness and the victory of God which you have in 40 to 55 as a whole
0: Time's running away, so I'm going to I'm going to skip some interesting questions that we could have got to um, on limited atonement. Maybe oh. we'll do a maybe yeah. we'll do a, another podcast mm. looking at some particular Calvinist uh, interpretations of things. But um, I did want to get to this one. Uh, Edossa in Scotland says in Luke twenty three thirty four, Jesus said, "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do." This, is, of course, are words from the cross. Mm-hmm i have several questions what did jesus mean who are these people that jesus interceded for the authorities that put him to death the jewish world the whole world were these people forgiven and if they need to repent to be forgiven then what was the importance of jesus's words for these people i mean anyone can get forgiveness <laughs> if they <laughs> repent so just some interest in yes, in yes. that particular phrase yes, yes. father forgive them yes. for they know not what they do yes
1: um I think the very specific thing is we're talking about Roman soldiers here, and Luke is probably writing for a Gentile audience um, uh, who would include people like those Roman soldiers. They're just doing their job, etc., mm. etc. The really interesting thing, which it also does not actually mention, mm-hmm. is what a radical innovation this represents within the whole Jewish martyr tradition hmm. if you look at the book called second Maccabees and look at second Maccabees 7 where there are seven brothers being tortured to death they say to their torturers and to the king who's commanding this torture to take place uh, we're going to get new bodies in the resurrection but God is going to punish you right. and you are going to have a terrible time and hmm. you'll see God's hmm. judgment on you and the extraordinary thing in Christianity from that moment on, from Luke 23, mm. through to Act 7, where Stephen says, Lord, mm. don't lay this into their charge. And then into the whole later Christian tradition is people praying for their persecutors. And this is like, oh my goodness, mm. nobody does this. Yeah. Why would you do it? Mm. You'd surely call down God's judgment. And then I think something about I think something about the nature of Scripture, did Luke think he was writing Scripture? Well, he was writing a Jesus story for the church to show how, yeah, I think he, in a sense, he thought he was writing Mm. something that we would call Scripture, is that Scripture is multivalent. Once you get the original meaning, here are these Roman soldiers nailing him to the cross, then you can see resonances out beyond that. Mm. And that phrase has been hugely powerful. Um, again and again I mean in, in, in Coventry Cathedral um, you know it's a father forgive mm. and it's an allusion to this um,
0: and the context of that of course being the bombing of the cathedral the bombing of the cathedral and, the and II, yeah. I think it
1: was the dean or the provost the next morning um, found um, some charred bits of wood and put them roughly in the shape of the cross and there they are and it yeah. says father forgive in other words they don't know what they're doing. Mm. Um, and and that's why Coventry has been such a symbol of reconciliation, reconciliation and, and peace. Yes. Um, yeah. And so the words do resonate out to the Jewish world, to the authorities, to the whole world. So th- it's a good question. Was Jesus' prayer answered in a sense? Do mm. we know that those Roman mm. soldiers were mm. forgiven? Mm. Um, we have no means of knowing that. Just like in many cases when you're in ministry, you preach to people, you counsel people. Only God really knows their hearts. Mm. people can pretend mm. people can pretend to be hard hearted when in fact they 're deeply penitent and vice yes. versa. Um, so I want to say that is god 's business. Um, I think there is a sense in which the gift of forgiveness just just like you know it 's an old chestnut. can you forgive somebody if they 're not sorry mm. and the answer is if you don 't, then their evil is still crippling you. Mm. And I think that's now a well-known thing psychologically. Yeah. And I think there is a sense in which the same is true about God. You know, we look at the world and say, God, how can you allow your world to be like this? And God says, I have done absolutely everything to make it clear I love you and I forgive you. And God is not, therefore, perpetually implicated sure. by the evil mm-hmm. that people
0: do. But mm-hmm. that, that's quite a dark mystery at the heart. And as we finish off this one, I suppose for me I've always felt as well that phrase obviously does resonate down the centuries and, and can be brought, brought up by many Christians since Jesus who are facing similar persecution, who, who are able to say, Father, forgive them, they know what course. they really do, Of course, as we saw in Coventry Cathedral. Uh, Coventry no. Cathedral, and, and uh, yeah, the, the,
1: the just the last two or three years ago, was it um, a group of Christians in, in Libya who were, were, were lined yeah. up and shot or beheaded or whatever um by isis yeah yeah that's right and and just calling on the name of jesus mm. and yeah and people in death camps offering forgiveness yeah. to their persecutors this, this stuff still happens it's it still, still real. happens and it's yeah. still
0: extremely powerful mm. yeah tom thank you very much thank you uh, and uh, next time we're going to be looking at the the other side of easter ah, the resurrection yes, yes. so we're looking forward to <laughs> hearing some questions on that and your thoughts for now thanks for being with me and we'll see you next time thank you thanks for joining us on this week's edition of the podcast a very happy easter to you wherever you're celebrating from lockdown Uh, i do hope that you can come back again for the next one too in a couple of weeks time we'll be looking at the resurrection yes a couple of weeks after the big day of course but uh, some interesting questions that you'll be sharing with us and tom will be responding to Uh, as ever if you want to find out more about this podcast and get yourself signed up for uh, all the content that's available and indeed the bonus prize draws and so on do go to the website ask N-t-right.com. but just before you go got uh, an easter egg that we have already actually shared on the uh, podcast uh, a year or more ago uh, but i thought i'd dig it out again today it's a great little number by tom on the guitar uh, and very relevant obviously to today's topic so to play us out here's tom with a song well we've got to that fun not too serious part of the podcast where uh, tom pulls out the guitar it happens to be my guitar actually but tom uh, tom plays it for us now we all know some of the best known songs from Sidney Carter, One More Step Along the World I Go, Lord of the Dance and so on. Um, in that sense, his, his songs have been sung in primary schools probably yeah. for, for decades now. Um, what I didn't realize until I came across a video of you online um, playing this particular song, that he obviously had quite a, a repertoire of different songs mm. and poems as well. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about how you first came across this one
1: well in the 60s he was um as you say writing things which um then it was kind of flaky and exciting that one was allowed <laughs> to play this sort of thing which had christian resonances and some people even bringing guitars into church i know that's now such a cliche <laughs> and it's typical sort of old 60s rockers still turning up gray haired <laughs> but still strumming away so i'm very much aware of that and, and okay that the joke is on me there but in the 60s this was hugely exciting mm. and um uh, when I was in a gap year, as we used to have between school and university, I was out in Canada and I was working in a lumber camp in British Columbia. And um, there was uh, a folk club in Prince George, and, which was about 50 miles away from where the lumber camp was. And I used to go in on the weekend. And I went one weekend and um, was chatting to people and they discovered that I played the guitar. Oh, come next week, do us, do us a set. So I, during that week working in the camper, what what should I, how should I sort of nail my colours to the mast? (laughs) And so I had all sorts of things from Dylan, Peter, Paul and Mary, various, um, Gordon Lightfoot. um, But I thought, actually, I'll do a couple of Sidney Carter ones right up front Mm. just to say, actually, this is who I am. Mm. So uh, right at the top of the first set, I played Lord of the Dance and then I played this Friday morning. Let's hear it. Okay. It's self-explanatory, I think. (laughs) It was on a Friday morning that they took me from the cell and I saw they had a carpenter to crucify as well. You can blame it on to Pilate. You can blame it on the Jews. You can blame it on the devil, but it's God that I accuse. It's God they ought to crucify instead of you and me. I said to the carpenter, are hanging on the tree. You can blame it on to Adam, you can blame it on to Eve, you can blame it on the apple, but that I can't believe. It was God that made the devil and the woman and the man, and there wouldn't be an apple if it wasn't in the plan. It's God they ought to crucify instead of you and me. I said to the carpenter, A-hanging on the tree, Now Barabbas was a sinner, And they let Barabbas go, But you are being crucified, For nothing here below. And God is up in heaven, And He doesn't do a thing, With a million angels watching, And they never move a wing. It's God they ought to crucify instead of you and me I said to the carpenter a hanging on the tree to hell with Jehovah to the carpenter I said I wish that a carpenter had made the world instead Goodbye and good luck to you our ways they will divide remember me in your kingdom The man you hung beside, it's God they ought to crucify, instead of you and me. I said to
0: the carpenter, a-hanging-on-the-tree. You've been listening to the Ask NT Write Anything podcast. Let other people know about this show by rating and reviewing it in your podcast provider. For more podcasts from Premier, visit premier.org.uk slash podcasts.